Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Over the last three years, I introduced you to many women with all types of health mysteries and myriads of ailments. While most of my episodes are with health practitioners and we discuss the case before I reveal how I solved the mystery, today I wanted to do something just a tad different. Instead of just introducing the case, I'm really excited to introduce you to an incredible woman who, like many of you, has dealt with all sorts of mysteries. I know how isolating it can be when you're dealing with a health issue. It feels like no one understands you, sees you, and sometimes even believes you. I want to introduce you to Megan O'Rourke, who is the author of several books with her latest book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. Megan is a writer, poet, and teacher, but also a patient who is on a mission to change how we look at chronic illness. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know, because that was me, before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. Megan, it's so good to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking. Yeah, well, I'm so excited to have you here and about your new book, which is all about reimagining chronic and mysterious illness. And this topic really, really warrants attention. So many of my listeners are dealing with all types of mystery illnesses. And so often these conditions instead of symptoms are pretty poorly understood, especially when it comes to conventional medicine. You know, instead of being encouraged, we're often told there's nothing we can do or we're sent to 25 different specialists who are not communicating with each other and looking at us as a whole. And so often if there's no resolution, then we're told that it's just because maybe we're depressed or worse, maybe it's in our heads. And I've been there. So many of my listeners have been there. And I know you sure have been there. It's such a lonely road and really it could be a lonely road on all levels. But with that said, I think there's so many different things that we can do. And I really want to bring attention to that and awareness to what can be done. Um, But as a start, can you share with us a little bit about your journey and how everything started for you? Absolutely. And I'm just taking in everything you've said, because I think I wrote this book 
sort of for my 21 year old self who was lost when she got sick. And it took me 10, more than 10 years to start to get answers because I didn't really know what could be done. And I didn't understand very much about what was happening to me. So very quickly, I'll say that in my early 20s, I started experiencing a strange roller coaster of neurological symptoms. The very first time I really noticed them was when I was walking down the street to work one morning and all of a sudden strange electric shocks began to flicker up and down my legs like someone was inserting tiny thin needles all over my body you know, and went to a doctor and he was like, well, maybe dry skin. (laughs) I was like, I don't know, dry skin doesn't usually make you feel like you're being tortured. So from there, just a whole host of things, vertigo, fatigue, daily hives, drenching night sweats, you know, in my early 20s, um, brain fog, just this whole morass of symptoms that roamed my body, joint pain. I ended up having to have surgery for a torn labrum and this, that, and the other. And yet every time I went to doctors, it was like, your labs look great. You exercise, you're fine. You're just worried. Right. And it took years and I absorbed that message. And so I thought something was wrong with me and my mind. You know, I thought, well, I'm just not doing this right. I must be eating wrong and it's my fault, right? Because I was a young woman who'd absorbed the idea that, you know, you're somehow always eating wrong, right? I just thought maybe I complain more than other people. But at the same time, I was in my early 20s and I was struggling to get through the day often. Yeah. Um, so over time, I was diagnosed with an, I was finally diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and then eventually with uh, Lyme disease that had gone undiagnosed from, you know, unnoticed really for many years. Um, also a genetic condition, which we can talk about. And then of course, Hashimoto's thyroiditis as well. And autonomic nerve, you know, I had this sort of plethless little trifecta of problems that often it turns out go together. Yeah. Because especially with autoimmunity, right? If there's one, there's going to be more because it's an immune system issue. And so many doctors are really looking at it as, oh, okay, Hashimoto's okay. Let's look at your thyroid. Oh, joint stuff. Okay. You know, let's look at that, but not the root of where it was. Now with Lyme, you know, because this is something that a lot of people deal with and something that is still very poorly understood, I think, conventionally. Do you ever remember having a tick on you or experiencing a rash? I grew up camping in New England and living in the woods in the tiny cabin every summer. I I lived in the year in New York City, but my parents were avid campers and teachers. So we spent the entire summers on like Cape Cod. And so, I mean, I, it's like, I can't tell you how many times my mother picked ticks off of us. That was like after the end of the day in the woods, she would go check us and just pick ticks off us. But I don't recall ever having a bullseye rash. That said, as I talk about in the book, I had a number of strange rashes at different times that just weren't classic bullseyes. So one of which happened when I was living in Connecticut or spending time in Connecticut with my mom and dad. So who knows? But yes, you know, I think one thing that's true about Lyme disease is that until relatively recently, most regular people like my mother and me, we thought you had to have a bullseye to get Lyme disease. And it turns out that the bullseye rash doesn't appear in every case of Lyme disease. A significant portion of people never get a bullseye rash. And that's a really good point and why it goes undiagnosed for so long. So as you started to see different doctors, um, 
What did that look like? Were you seeing different specialists? Were you seeing a group where they were looking at different angles for you? Like, how did that go? And when did you actually start to see differences? Was it when you looked at things from a more functional approach? I think like a lot of young Americans, um, my jobs changed. And so my insurance changed, right? So I had had one GP who had been, knew me pretty well, who was the one most interested in what I was telling her, right? She did really try to figure out some stuff, but my job changed. And then I had a totally new insurance and had to meet a totally new doctor who, you know, I literally picked off an internet site, right? He was just a name that was at a hospital. And so at that point, you know, I started to get referred to specialists by him, but he was pretty dismissive of me. So I was really in that merry-go-round of just, okay, see a specialist in three weeks. Okay, go see the specialist. And then, you know, in some cases they found things, oh, you've torn the labrum and your joint, we have to do surgery. But no one was ever looking at my symptoms in the round. And in fact, when I said to this GP, I'm just exhausted all the time. Something is wrong. At this point, I was a little more forceful and really trying to say I'm not okay. He said, well, you're a little anemic, you know, he's probably just getting your period, right? So I was felt so lonely and abandoned and really ill-equipped to figure out what to do next. I was pretty young. I just didn't understand how to be assertive on my own behalf and how to find in this sea of people someone who would help me. And then interestingly, a sister of a friend of mine who is a nurse I was talking to her at a party and she said, you need to see a functional doctor. Here's a practice to go to. And she's, she, as a conventional nurse in a conventional hospital, was like, you're not going to be helped by the conventional doctors you're seeing. And I did then go see um, doctors at an integrative practice with a functional approach where they're trying to get to the root of the problem. They immediately did labs that no one had ever done and really uncovered a whole host of issues, including that my thyroid hormones were low. I didn't yet have autoantibodies, but I was didn't have adequate thyroid levels. And thanks to them, I found that, and I think this is something a lot of your listeners go through, I had to shift my mindset from one where I saw conventional medicine as authorities and kind of had that view of my body as almost a car made of different parts that didn't communicate, right? I had kind of absorbed the siloed version of medicine. And I had to start to see that I needed to look after my body as a whole system and that things like sleep and food and food sensitivities, in my case, were causing additional problems. Even as we still didn't understand the root of it, they were paying attention to the layers of my body and the layers of my health in a way no one ever had. And that transformed my own understanding. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is so important because as much as, of course, it's such a journey with all of these things, how you look at it makes such a difference. And that disjointed sort of care, it just doesn't work. And I know sometimes people, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, you change jobs, you have different insurances, and oftentimes certain functional doctors, or I should probably say most functional doctors aren't covered. So I know that it's tough sometimes, but then 
there's other things that people can do. And I think what you're saying in terms of at least having that understanding that all of these things relate, if someone isn't able to see a functional doctor, maybe then doing some things on their own, at least to try, right, to look at sleep and stress and diet and things like that. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, it still took about another seven years before I really figured out that it was Lyme disease driving a lot of my symptoms. But in that time, there were periods where, especially in the summer, for whatever reason, that sunlight was really good for me. (laughs) I was almost symptom-free, right? And it was purely through management of diet, stress, and sleep, really, right? And and so that taught me the power of those things, right? That we, we, conventional medicine disregards them, but I was amazed that I could go from being really, really sick to almost well for some periods of time, you know, in the right circumstances. it was really, really powerful and taught me that there's a lot in our bodies that can heal on its own, right? Um, I, I needed medicine. I needed certain kinds of medicine for sure. But in the right circumstances, I could support my body with the help of the, my functional doctors. Absolutely. Right. No, I definitely hear that. And, you know, I think sometimes people could be very black and white, like it's no, it's only like this or it's only like that. But really, I think it's the understanding that there is all of those different steps. And sometimes I think it could go the other way too, where people can get very into functional medicine. And I see this a lot with thyroid, and you know, which is great, obviously, because we're looking at it from all these angles. But sometimes what I mean by going the other way is people may be very anti-medicine completely and say, okay, I'm going to do everything naturally. That happened to me. You know, I had a similar story from the conventional side. No one was believing me, no one was helping me, no one was putting anything together. So I sort of wrote off conventional medicine and I was like, okay, I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to do food and mindset and stress, which was very helpful. But for my thyroid, I actually needed a little bit of medicine. And it took me a few years to realize that because I kept saying, no, I'm not doing it because it's medicine, right? But there is a time and place. And I think it's, you know, the encouragement is to know that we have these options and we can marry them together. And that's, I know, a lot of your message as well. Absolutely. I mean, this is something I really try to lay out in the book is the sort of fluctuations in my own thinking and also my own coping mechanisms, right? Because when you live with a chronic illness, you also on your own have to figure out a strategy for surviving it, right? Not just the physical, but the mental challenge of every day knowing you're going to struggle. And in my case, that meant a very similar story to yours where I went from almost suspecting the functional doctors I was seeing, like it took me a while to warm up to them and really trust them because it was new. It was novel. I hadn't been raised in a family that would ever have seen integrative doctors or had the money really to do it. Right. And then once I embraced that, I then became very skeptical of, you know, medicine. So when I got the Lyme disease diagnosis, I really resisted taking antibiotics because I had done so much work on my diet, my gut microbiome, right? And actually, it was a functional medicine practitioner who I really trusted who said, look, you know, there is a time and place and for everything. And antibiotics are damaging when they're misused. Um, and we also, in your case, can't expect that just taking antibiotics is going to make you better. But Lyme disease is a really damaging disease. You've had it for a long time. And antibiotics are going to be an important tool 
among other tools to get you on your way. And then you work on your gut after. And in my case, that really worked for me. Some people are able to do herbs and other things, but I really needed those stronger medicines to just get to a baseline where my body could start fighting when I supported it. Yeah. So that was one of those moments, right? Where I was like, I really don't want to do this. But then I saw immediately how helpful right, <laughs> those antibiotics were to me. And again, used sort of correctly in a sense, right? Because so, so often they're overprescribed. Oh, you have a cold, here you go. Oh, you have this, here you go, right? But in this case, and like you said, your situation, your Lyme was really chronic. So, I mean, it was in there, you know, and we needed something else. Um, but thank goodness that you had this doctor to support you so that then you worked on your gut again. And you already had all that knowledge yourself from earlier, right? About diet and gut and what to do. How long were you on antibiotics? On and off for eight months. And then again, at another point on and off for about three months, maybe even a little longer. So a long, long time. I kept a chart, right, to try to figure out how is this affecting me? And how is it affecting my symptoms? And it was just so clear that whatever other things they were, you know, I think one thing that's hard too is once you start thinking about your body as a whole system, and you understand the damage that aspects of contemporary life do to our bodies, like processed food or stress and being on email all the time, right, then you want to protect yourself. And I, that was part of it, too, is like, okay, I know, I know every conventional medicine has a a function and a cost, right? But that part of what I had to do as a chronically ill person was accept in all cases, okay, the risk benefit calculus, right? How, if I do this, what does this mean? If I do that, what does that mean? Yeah, actually, it was a functional medicine doctor who said to me, you know, you could always get something like a fecal microbiota transplant after you do the antibiotics and really work on your microbiome that way. And I did end up doing that. Mm -hmm. I saw that in your book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Partly because I knew I was writing the book and I was really interested in this area of medicine. So I was willing to be a little bit of a, a guinea pig in the book for it. But I was really curious, would this help me? And it profoundly helped. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because this is something that people often ask about. And there's not, I mean, of course it, it's done, but it's not as common where, you know, everyone knows someone or they have a friend that they can ask, hey, how did you do on this? What did you notice? Um, I'd love to hear your experience about that. So I ended up going to a clinic in England, which does fecal micro or FMTs, as they're called, for a wide variety of patients. In the U.S., I'm, uh, currently, you can get them, you know, supported by insurance only in the case of C. diff infections or C. difficile infections, which is a kind of bacterial infection, right? So I should first say that it was incredibly expensive and part of the way I did that was that I knew I was writing this book and I was like, okay, it's just part of my expenses, right? For, for writing this. Um, and my husband agreed and we did the research and we thought, okay, this is really worth it. And we put it on a credit card and paid it off over time. But it, what happens is you basically get a kind of transplant of microbiome from other people that have been screened. And in this case, the clinic did it over the course of two weeks they explain that you might have an immune reaction, right? Because your old microbiome is kind of dying off and being replaced by the new. You do a colonic and various things so that you're kind of ready for new, new bacteria. And in my case, I had a really strong immune reaction to it, like very severe. I felt really flu-like and sick. And so they said, okay, this is a sign. This is working. Let's not do the full 10 days. Your body may not be ready for that. Um, so I think I did about seven days of transplants each day. And then 
felt sick for a few days. And then I'm not kidding, within two weeks, just felt levels of energy and health that I hadn't felt in 15 years. So, you know, and got pregnant two weeks later, so after trying for a long time. So, you know, I don't know, obviously, that's an anecdotal story, right? And we need a lot more research and data. But the same um, practitioner who had encouraged me to try it, and had done a lot of research on this clinic, said, look, we have to really hope that these are available to all of us in a you know, insurance-based form in some way uh, in the future because they have so much promise for uh, immune-mediated diseases like autoimmune disease. But it was a little scary, right? I was putting myself out there a bit, right? And and I think that's something that many of us feel, and I'm sure you went through this too, where one thing I hear from readers all the time is, how do you know what to do and what not to do, right? We're living at the edge of medical knowledge in some way, right? We are each trying to find personalized approaches through the, ideally through the really helpful and rigorous support of a functional practitioner where you all do have some knowledge. But I don't know, I I wonder if you agree that there's so much we don't know. And so we're having to be mindful explorers, you know? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, especially when it comes to microbiome, I mean, there's so many things we don't know about so many things, but, you know, even with all of the advanced stool testing that we have, and there's all these bugs that we can identify, that's still probably what, like one thousands, like 10,000, I don't even know of like what's there. I mean, there's trillions of different bacteria. So, you know, sometimes people get in result, you know, we do a lot of GI map testing and GI map is a uh, comprehensive uh, digestive test. So, you know, that looks at a lot of the bad bugs and it looks at some of the good bugs, but, you know, and as much as it gives us a lot of information, I always tell people that's not an end all be all. That's just a snapshot. And then we use that information along with symptoms, along with, you know, other things to then make our decision. But that it actually brings me to my next question, you know, what you were saying, you know, how do you know what to do and when to do it? And so you mentioned that, you know, yes, you want to have guidance from someone that, you know, may have more of an idea and that's helpful, but what else? Um, do you feel like does intuition did for you, did intuition play a part or what else helped you to make some of those key decisions? You know, intuition often did play a role, but I will also say the experience was so overwhelming and I got so many mixed messages that at times I was also clinging too much to a certain fact, right? And thinking too much that, for example, maybe food sensitivities were the real problem so that I stopped looking for more answers when in fact I was still pretty sick and that should have been a clue, right? That more was going on. And what I will say is I think many of us who live with chronic illnesses you get sort of fatigued, right? You get um, like search fatigue, (laughs) where you've been searching for answers and trying things. And then, you know, you've got a partial answer, and you just need to take a breather, right? And it's daunting and scary to get up hope and try new things. So I, I always try to acknowledge that double reality that intuition is so important, and we're coached to stop listening to ourselves. And on the flip side, all of that coaching can sometimes make us cling over much to one answer, right? When we find it, at least in, in my experience. So once I had realized that about myself, I started trying to keep a chart of all my symptoms so that I had a really clear record of, okay, I think when I took that antibiotic, I started to feel better, but like, was that true? Right. Um, I think my thyroid medication is now balanced and I'm feeling symptom relief. But if I have a chart of my symptoms with some numbers and some notes, you know, about mood, energy, all of those things, 
for me in particular, I, I realized that my memory wasn't always that good. And that also sometimes my desire for something to work made me think it was working when in fact I was still suffering. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And I definitely hear what you're saying about going to each end, right? Like feeling like not doing enough or clinging to something. I've definitely done that. And sometimes it's information that you read and it really makes sense. But depending on what it is, you know, there's also really good marketing sometimes, right? I mean, I think we've all been there where we see a supplement and it's like, oh, it's going to solve this, this and this, right? I mean, now I think for me, especially like I, I know I don't want to say I know better, but, you know, I, I kind of know like, hey, this is marketing, this is real. But when you're feeling so lost and so hopeless, sometimes like you see, like, okay, it's this test. This is going to solve my issue, right? Or it's this vitamin. Yeah, it's overwhelming. And you read something and you're like, oh my God, there could be a thousand things wrong with me. So of course you choose one thing, right? Because it's just too much otherwise. Now, one of the things you said also is keeping a journal, which I think is so key. And that's something that I really encourage a lot of my clients to do as well, because as much as we think, oh yeah, this is that, this is that, there's so many different things on a daily basis from the foods that we eat to the emotions we feel to the things we're exposed to, right? It's almost impossible to keep it all in our head. And so I'm wondering, is it something where you made your own journal or was it an app that you used or anything that was helpful online, you know, where you can track symptoms? I am kind of um, both a paper person and a computer person. So I did create just like a little Excel or I don't know, Google Sheets or whatever, one of those sort of spreadsheets where I would just put my main symptoms that bothered me and I would just rate them on a scale of one to 10 each day. So it wasn't even that laborious to put it in, right? I could just do that. And I also just would jot kind of a sentence or two about the day. Um, so it didn't feel like a big, another thing I was adding to my life, you know, when we're all, we're all struggling to begin with. And I could just say, you know, went out to a restaurant, felt really tired and bad afterwards. What happened? What did I get accidental gluten or is there something else? Because I realized quickly I couldn't eat gluten. You know, because I think for a while I was really trusting restaurants when they told me, oh, there's nothing and there's not this and this and this in it. And then I realized really quickly, like, I just was crazy sensitive to cross-contamination. and I just like couldn't eat at a lot of restaurants at that time. That's gotten better over time. But yeah, just trying to be honest with myself about what was and wasn't working for me, um, because there was a period where I had to be extremely abstemious about food, right? Um, I had to really use high quality oils. I had to really, really eat like a very simple array of foods. And sort of as I got a little better, some of my food sensitivities abated and some didn't. So yeah, and then I just also kept a journal sometimes a little bit more with my emotions and what was going on as also an outlet. Right, right. And that's really important. And, you know, I think what a lot of people struggle with is what you were describing where when you're not feeling well, you have to almost be more, I don't want to even say stricter, but streamlined really, right? Because there are things that affect you more from, you know, even sometimes perfumes, right? And other environmental toxins and different foods. And I think we already feel lonely because we don't feel well. But then on top of that, we can't socialize, right? Because everyone goes out and, you know, you started this journey when you were younger, right? So like your friends are probably going out to a bar and drinking beer and you feel like you can't do that, right? And there's all of these other things that are very isolating. So what are some of the things that helped you with that? And what tips can you give the listeners when they are feeling this way and feeling so alone? 
a friend who's actually a science writer who writes a lot about complex conditions, doesn't have one himself, uh, gave me really helpful advice. He said, each of these things is for a time. Commit to it. Don't not commit to it. Just do it for a time and find out what doing that thing does for you. So I remember feeling so isolated because my friends were all going out or they would invite me out. And I knew if I went, it just would be stressful and I would be worried and maybe I couldn't, you know, I really couldn't eat at restaurants for a while. And I just had to come to that place where I accepted that, which trust me, took a while, right? And then once I did, I tried to reassure myself, even though I didn't know, like, look, this is probably temporary. I'm going to hope this is temporary. And I'm giving myself the best chance by committing to scaling back, trying to heal a little bit, and then seeing where I am and what modifications I can make then, right? Because I think a reality of chronic illness, you know, even today when I'm more functional than I used to be, I have major ups and downs, right? Like I get a virus and then everything's triggered afterward for some time. So I had to really adopt this live in the day. Everything is temporary. Don't catastrophize but do insist on the reality of what I'm experiencing, right? Which is a really hard line to walk. One really simple thing I did was I just, there were two very good friends of mine where I had found this one really clean restaurant, vegan, gluten-free. And I was like, look, will you just, not fancy, like it wasn't a nice atmosphere, but I was like, will you just go out to dinner with me there once, right? So I can see you out and it will be nice. You know, and they did, and it was totally not what they would have chosen to do. But they were so sweet, and they sat That's there eating like are, right? right, like they we all ate alkalinizing green soup together, and it was incredibly sweet of them, right? And it really meant something to me, and it made me feel buoyed and able to continue. So I think if you can find that person who will do that for you, that's a great thing to do. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think as people go up through their journey, sometimes, you know, they find that in a friend they already had, but oftentimes they probably find it in new friends that they meet through different communities that are available. Maybe people who also have some similar struggles. Absolutely. I became sort of online buddies with a bunch of people. And I think realizing that I was not alone, right? I was incredibly lonely, but I was not at all alone, was this transformative moment and was part of what drove me to write the book, right? Was that, a, you know, bad and for ill. I was like, oh my God, I'm not alone. There are so many of us out here who are being made invisible by this, our inability to talk about and treat mysterious chronic illnesses. You know, we really resist those messy, untidy realities in our culture. Sometimes partners do, right? A lot of the people I interviewed for my book described having you know, so many challenges with their partners, some of whom really wanted to help, um, but just lacked a framework to support. Yeah, because sometimes, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I just need someone to hold space, right? And I think for, you know, us as women, right? I mean, of course, we want to talk, we want to express our emotions, and we want to be heard. And I know this is a conversation I have with my husband a lot. You know, he's a typical guy, right? So they have a mind of, okay, what's the problem? Let me find a solution, right? And it's like, sometimes there may not be a solution. So I just need you to acknowledge what I said. Like, just repeat back to me what I said, because sometimes he's like, you just told me that. Why did you repeat it? And I was like, well, I repeated it because I didn't feel heard. And he was like, 
oh, okay. <laughs> That's so funny. I've had the exact same conversation with my husband where I'm like, just repeat it. <laughs> don't don't go on the internet to look for a cream that might help me. <laughs> You know, but even though that's sweet, I know it's his act, his love language is to go on the internet and look for answers. <laughs> right. It's probably right. Like the love language is, um, <laughs> right. Like, like helping. Right, yeah. Helping. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that happens sometimes that I know with your journey and so many people that are listening, it goes through ups and downs, as you mentioned. And, you know, sometimes like you said, you have periods where you feel really good, but yeah, you know, things are still going on. And one of the things that happens is that doctors often dismiss us, especially if the symptoms may not seem so bad to them, or they may see like, hey, you know, you're an accomplished writer and, you know, you have this job and you have a family you don't look sick, right? Even though you're feeling what you're feeling inside. How do you deal with that? The invisibility is so hard. I mean, in my experience, I write in the book that the disease made me suffer. The invisibility almost killed me, right? Because I think that we are just naturally incredibly social creatures who live in networks with one another, right? And so when the profound experience of the illness of our own body, our possible mortality, and certainly our daily suffering, you know, is forefront in our lives, and no one is acknowledging it, we feel that our suffering is meaningless, right? It is made meaningless by that lack of recognition. And I feel that so many of us, I mean, first of all, I feel chronically ill people are the strongest people there are, right? It's like you're getting up and dealing with the day every day, despite so many problems. I don't know. And it's just important that that gets recognized. It helps you do it the next day. If someone just says, I see that you're suffering, I wish I could do something for you, which there was one friend of mine who was great about saying that to me. She would just say, I see that you're not okay today. Are you, you know, let's go sit and have tea. And that meant a huge amount to me. So the, the obvious second problem of invisibility is that there are structural realities that we need. We need care. We need treatment. We need better diagnostics. We need our jobs to you know, support us in our disability. Um, we need that social safety net and the promise of future treatment. And invisibility poses challenges to all of those things. So that's part of why, you know, I'm trying to talk about this experience and write about it to put into shape. Look, this is real. It may not be something you see really easily on your friend's face, but this is the depth of their lived um, experience. I'll say just really quickly too, it was this, I had this funny experience where I was so sick for so many years, just on my couch. And some of the times I was sickest, I was on my couch and not leaving the house, right? So then when my friend saw me, I was usually at my best, right? So very few people saw those 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 periods of being really sick. But then when I was pregnant, I got a terrible rash all over my body, which was annoying. It itched, but it was hardly profound physical experience. Oh my God, the sympathy I got. Oh my God, you must, are you okay? We feel so terrible for you. Like doctors rushing over to me when I would be at the hospital for my checkup. Are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I just have a rash, you know? Um, but it was such a stark 
ex- example to me of like, right, if you, we can't see things, it's hard for us to empathize, apparently. For sure. And that's why I think, you know, I'm just so excited about this book and for so many people to get their hands on it, because I think people can just so connect with all of your stories and just bringing that awareness, um, not just to patients, but to doctors about what's really happening. Now, one of the things you talk about towards the end of the book is about healing. So what do you feel that it means to truly heal? Is it just specifically going to remission or are there other things that we need to consider when we think about healing? So I call the last section healing, even as in the section, I really try to capture the fact that, you know, if when I got sick, my focus was on getting better in the way that well people mean better. By the end of the book, the object of my quest had changed. Now I wanted to live well with my illness, right? I knew I was not going to get better in that sort of typical sense of the word. I was going to instead have to learn to live with illness. But I had gotten, you know, I had found out some of what was wrong and I had been treated. So to me, the healing I'm trying to talk about is first and foremost, the the validation and recognition of the significance of this experience on a societal level. Too many sick people are fighting in having to fight individually on their own terms for recognition and answers. And we did, we need a national conversation about how conventional medicine is ill-equipped to handle these diseases and where patients can get support through functional medicine, lifestyle changes, etc. So For me, the healing was, I think, first of all, letting go of a destructive notion that I should just keep pushing myself on and on and on, right? And trying to build a new life that accommodated the reality that I live with these illnesses, right? And they're not fully going away. That said, I've gone a lot into remission for long periods of time because I have learned to say no (laughs) to things, right? I have learned to try to go to bed and turn Netflix off before 11 p.m. You know, I don't always succeed. Mm -hmm. I confess the other night I stayed up late, just like everyone was asleep. It was so nice, right? But trying to live at, trying to do my my things that I know I need to do 80% of the time, right? And then letting little bits of joy and um I don't know if I can, if I'm well enough, you know, sometimes going out and having that glass of wine. Right. So, so making a balanced life is for me, the healing that, that I have right now. Yeah. Mm, I really, really love what you're saying there. And I think this is an important point for everyone to hear because, you know, I agree with you. So many people think, oh, well, you know, I'm not healed until all my symptoms go away. And yes, we can have resolution of many symptoms, but, you know, life goes on. Sometimes one thing may get better, but we're constantly exposed to things on top of even that original thing that got us feeling off, right? So it's really about thinking of it as a journey and knowing what your body can handle. And some days you can handle it more than others, right? Like, so it just depends on what's going on. Right. And it goes back to that risk reward, right? That it's like, there are some things I know I do that I know like technically should make, would make me feel a little worse, but sometimes that extra half hour with friends laughing is just so worth it staying up late, right? Mm-hmm. So it's trying to find that dimensional life as my illnesses permit and as my, you know, where can I control it and where do I have to cede control? Right. Or how can you make it up on the other side, right? Like if we are staying up an extra half an hour, you know, can we put in an extra half an hour in the morning? Can someone help with the kids or, or something else? Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, one of the things that I found um, 
just through my journey is as my symptoms got better and I felt better, sometimes certain things would creep up. And sometimes I know, oh, it's because I did this, this. And sometimes it would almost seem like it's out of nowhere. And my mind used to really spiral where, you know, I would feel fine and all of a sudden I would have brain fog one day. And like, oh my gosh, it's coming back. Everything is coming back, right? And then the mind just goes down and it's this domino effect, right? Like it's going to be this and it took me this many years. So now I'm back there. Um, Does that ever happen to you or do you ever feel that way? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I do sometimes have these periods of getting sicker for reasons I don't totally understand. And it's terrifying, right? Because you're like, oh God, am I just going back, right? So that's part of what I was talking about when I say, you know, we have to learn to live with illness you know, well, not over-identifying with it, right? But just that, that bal- I think of it as this balancing act between the tracks my mind wants to go on. My mind kind of wants to ignore all this and sometimes wants to focus almost exclusively on my fears, right? And so I'm always trying to find this groove in the middle and figure out, okay, when is it appropriate to stop, you know, <laughs> take a breath and just, okay, let's be practical about it. What's triggering this? But yeah, it's really scary. It's really scary. It's a messy process, right? None of us have probably mastered this, right? I think mastery is the wrong idea, right? Well, right, because it's it's a flow, right? It's yeah, a one flow, of the, right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one right. of the things I discovered though with myself, um, which helps me, and hopefully this is something that can help others listening as well, is that when I know, you know, because as you, I've also done a lot of work on balancing things and, you know, things still come up, obviously, but you know that your body's in a much different place now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, right? 15 years ago. And same for me. So sometimes when I see some of those symptoms creep up, not to say that I ignore them because that's not necessarily the right thing, but when I I watch my mind and I'm big into minding my mind. And once I see that spiral going to, oh no, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, right? It's like, I stop right there. It's like, okay, brain fog happens from time to time. Maybe I'm tired, right? Maybe this, and it could be a bigger issue sometimes. And sometimes it's just, you know, hormonal or something going on with my cycle. But I think it's just that notion of, okay, it could be a setback, but we're in a different place than we were then. So just because it took us seven years to get here, then it may take us seven days now because our body is in such a different place. Totally. Right. And then sometimes you're getting a cold, right? Sometimes I think, oh no, and then I get a little cold and then I'm better. Yeah. Minding your mind. I love that. I'm going to mind my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I try. It's a work in progress. Listen, I, you know, I do practice what I preach, but it that's why it's called a practice, right? It's an everyday, you know, it's a daily thing. But yeah, I mean, I think we all are doing the best we can. And, you know, I just think it's so important to know that we're not alone and that there's other people there and we can connect and we have these resources, you know, like your book and everyone definitely pick up the invisible kingdom. It's wonderful. And I think you will really just feel just part of a bigger community. Um, and there's so many helpful things. And I think just, you know, I really connected with you through the book. So thank you so much for the book. Thank you so much for being here um, and sharing your story and offering support. Um, and as we end here, um, can you give my listeners three things that you feel like are the most kind of important to you to think about or, you know, things they think you need to do or just mindset to think about when 
you know, they're dealing with chronic illness and, um, you know, they want to move forward. Absolutely. I mean, I think the number one thing is believing that you have the right to answers and care, right? I think I spent far too much time accepting you're too stressed (laughs) as an answer. Um, So in whatever form it comes, just being attentive to your own intuitions, your own needs. Um, I also think we don't stop and give ourselves enough credit, right? Stop it. Sometimes stop and think, wow, you know, I'm just, this is really hard. And I'm like, really trying. Right? <laughs> um, that might sound super hokey, but I try to take like a walk in the forest every day. I live near these woods and it's very calming. And in those moments, I can sometimes just feel proud of myself. Um, I hope that makes sense. But, you know, I it's so important that we take pride in just getting through the day. More practically, you know, for me, food sensitivities, sleep were major pieces and finding the practitioners that I trusted and who could support me and with whom I had a really good, really open relationship with, as opposed to feeling like I was kind of picking and choosing what to tell them, <laughs> you know, that, that was really important too. Yeah. yeah, that's super helpful. Well, Megan, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And it was wonderful to connect with you. And I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you so much. I was so happy to be here, Ina. Thanks. My hope is that hearing more about Megan's journey and reading her book, as well as everything else that I discuss on the show, helps you see that you are not alone. While it's not always easy, I know that, certainly not going to lie about that. There are answers out there, and there certainly is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mysteries Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.